Hello folks, welcome back. I'm your host Simon Ward and this is the High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast where I can promise that you'll always hear a Yorkshire accent and we'll never have any adverts. We chat with our guests about peak performance, fitness, health, nutrition, recovery, longevity, relationships and happiness because it doesn't matter whether you want to finish your first sprint triathlon, set a personal best at your next race or just keep turning up until you're in your 70s. Each of these elements has real significance. Cycle training typically occupies 45 to 50% of a triathlete's weekly program. The longer your chosen race distance, the more time you need in the saddle. So bike fit is a crucial element. Today, I'm joined by Phil Burt, a physiotherapist by training and after a long career supporting the world's best at three Olympic Games and seven Tour de France's, Bert is now concentrating on using his expertise to help cyclists at all levels to improve their health, comfort and performance. If you want to find out how to get the most from your bike, then this is a must-listen-to podcast. By the way, talking of performance, if you've ever thought about doing one of those long-distance triathlons like an Ironman or an Outlaw event, you might be interested in a two-page case study I've written outlining the simple formula I've used to help hundreds of people just like you to excel at their first long distance event. You can get your copy by clicking on the very obvious link in the show notes. Okay, let's get chatting with Phil Burt. Well, welcome to the podcast, Mr. Phil Burt. Hello, Simon. How are you? I'm very, very well, thank you. It's lovely to speak to you. Thank you for uh, sparing us the time. Um, as we're talking, I can see uh, you've got the um, Team Sky yellow jersey there in the background. Who, who's? Oh, lots of them. So, who, who <laughs> did those? Who did those belong to? So that that one there is, um, I think, the very special one because it's almost ten years ago now. That's uh, Bradley's first ever, yeah, you know, first British man to ever win the Tour de France. There's one of Mr. Frooms over there. Um, would you believe I have a lot more? in the cupboard at home <laughs> which aren't in frames or anything like that and then you can't see it but Mr Hoyes is up here an Olympic one so uh, yeah I've been very very lucky to know some very very special people and um, work with them to achieve some special things mm. well uh, let's talk about the Tour de France of course as people are listening to this it's all history but uh, um, yesterday they had that fantastic stage on the Glibier I've ridden up there they were <laughs> twice as fast and twice as comfortable as I looked and, uh, but I remember, I remember when you look to the summit there, and you can see that house, and you think, "There's the summit, there's the summit," and it's another kilometre further on. Um, it it's, a heart, it's a heartbreaker. But then I've not, I've not ridden up that other one. But um, what about Pogacar and um, and Vinegard? I mean, I know, um, I know. Wow. Well, um, I watched it and couldn't believe what I was seeing. It, yeah, amazing days racing. I love the Tour de France, and I, I climbed the Glibier, and I probably took three times as long as that. <laughs> I know what you mean about that house. It's, is that where the tunnel is, isn't it? And you have to go over the top. Yeah, but you see it. And it's, you know, like if, if you ever go skiing, you see these places are in the winter, they're like ski cafes. And and I was yeah. just set my heart on that. I was, I was really struggling around that point where you're going on the opposite side of the valley <coughs> and you see it there. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah. just get to there, get to there and then get to there. And then it's like, oh, there you see the summit up the top. Yeah. And, and it's a really good point, uh, just to digress slightly, in my... I used to go to, with my wife to France before we had kids and do knock off these iconic climbs. It's just great to say you've done it, isn't it? But the hardest one I find was um, Von 2 because the first two thirds of it is in that pine forest. You can't see where you're going. And I had no reference point to how... For, um, I think Alto-S, for example, which we'll see today, is one of the easiest ones to climb because, you know, you just knock them off 21, 20. You know, yeah, every, yeah, yeah. how close you get. And, and you can see where you're going. Whereas 
one, two, I, I, I really struggled with it for a number of reasons, which you can discuss. But yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, Podjar has found that he isn't Superman because basically trying to chase every single attack, he should have let Doomling go, uh, not Doomling, um, sorry, he should have let Roglic go because Roglic's no threat to him. I mean, all he had to do was follow Vinograd each time. And he's basically, you're a co-star, I mean, he was doing a bloody hit session in the middle of the... <laughs> well, of the, of so the it... So it, it's it's not just that. It occurred to me that perhaps he's been very enthusiastic these last few days. He's not just sat in the bunch and the, and and you know and on the post ride talk when you've got um, Pete Kenyuk and um, Lizzie Dynan talking yeah. with um, uh, the presenter. I can't yeah. think of his name, but um, Stephen. Yeah, when, oh, Gary you know, Imlach. Gary Imlach. They were talking about how. Pogacar isn't like the previous winners where he's just content to sit in the bunch and roll along and protect his position. He's been wanting to dominate stages, been wanting to sort of like take a second in the sprint. But I wonder if all of those little displays of energy and enthusiasm have started to catch up with him a little bit. You know, he, he was just found wanting at the point where, where he needed to be showing his... Yeah, it could be any other things. But I think... I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if he turns it all around today. Because if you remember in 2020, he lost time in that bit where they, mm. there was echelons and lost loads of wind. He, he had a bad day. And, and then he, because no one expected that first one he won, he just kept coming back and coming back and doing crazy things. But you know what? I, I, I applaud that. I, I, you know, one thing of the team I work with, Team Sky, everyone got bored in the end because it was so calculated and so yeah, down yeah. to the yeah. and, and, and And people want to see this type of race. And also, I think we, which is celebrating that human fragility that he doesn't know his limits. I love yeah. it. <laughs> but I think yesterday he made what the other thing is sometimes I think in the cycling triathlon, we can overanalyze things and he might just have had a bad day, you know? Well, he did say that he says everybody has a bad day. He's not, he's not yeah. superhuman. He is human. And um, why, why wouldn't he have a bad day? You know, why wouldn't he miscalculate? He's still a young guy. And sometimes that, you know, you can make mistakes, can't you? Um, well, Chris, Paul, I'll give you the way you're looking. I imagine your listeners are looking at Golden Knights. And uh, um, Chris Borman, who's normally on that show, I have to say, if you ever have the opportunity to be in his company and uh, hear him speak, he's one of the cleverest, most succinct um, mm-hmm. orators and thinkers I've ever heard. And um, I was lucky enough to work with him in the, you know, the Secret Squirrel Club or whatever you want to call it. And um, But Chris once said it about it, it's the, the, the ability of titration of effort. So let's just talk about, it can apply that to anything, but he was talking about individual pursuit of which you know he held the world record for a long time he was saying the ideal team individual pursuit you literally die the moment you cross the line because that would be as much as you could give it and he goes anything other than that is less <laughs> and he yeah. goes it's that but he said he's always what he's playing with is how much is too much how much is too little and that's what Podjar's finding out is titration of effort it's like what can you what where he didn't know what his limits were and, and we were lucky enough that you know we were we were witness to that rather than it being in a training event or something like that. You know, I think it's great. <laughs> it's just... uh, uh, so it is a client of mine. He, he's a triathlete, but he decided he wanted to have a go ultra running. Now, when I talk to a lot of triathletes about what they really want to achieve, a lot of them come back and say, well, I want to find out how good I can be or how, where my limits are. Right. Yeah. But when people fail, when they, when they, when they see it as failure, um, I don't see it as failure, but when they, when they see what they think is failure, they're very disappointed. Right. So yeah. in this ultra race, it was 100K. He got to 62K and his hamstring tightened up and then his glute and then he, and then he basically couldn't put any pressure or weight through his leg. And so he had to stop. And even walking was painful. So he got two thirds of the way in. 
And I spoke to him a couple of days later and said, well, how, how are you feeling about that? They're thinking he was going to say, oh, rubbish, you know, bloody really disappointed. I completely failed. He said, I'm over the moon. He said, because I've been trying to find what my limits are and now I found them. You know, um, and he said, so how much, what, what more of a success could I have than, than actually knowing where my limits are? I know that on a 100K ultra race, currently I can only do 60K. But yeah. I know that I can, uh, I know what I need to do. And it's not, it's not my aerobic fitness that let me down. It's some of the stuff probably we're going to talk to about today. It's my framework and my body and my biomechanics that let me down, not my aerobic yeah. fitness. I wasn't out of breath when I had to stop. Um, but he said, at least I know where my limits are now. So that's, that's a result. And that's a brilliant way of looking at stuff and reframing things. Exactly. We often, very similar thing is um, in the medical world, often see people, and you might resonate with it, but often when you've got pain or uh, discomfort or an injury and you have an MRI scan, we're obsessed with scanning these days in sports medicine. And uh, we have a phrase, treat the patient, not the scan, because often mm-hmm. people have a, a scan and it will show a red herring of something that um, people have ended up having an operation, but it's nothing to do with a pain or issue. But the more common thing is you have a scan and it doesn't show any pathology or any anything broken you know and people get really disappointed with that because what they hook their feelings on i want a reason why i'm not succeeding or i've got this pain right yeah i often turn around and go no no no, no. this is really good news you're not you're not broken so if we if you're not broken we can take this to another level you know we can we can we can now move forward knowing mm-hmm. that we haven't got to observe some huge pathology inside your hip knee or whatever and you can move it. but yeah it's funny as human beings how we get maybe focus on the wrong things and tricked into believing failure isn't success and so on and so forth yeah mm-hmm. interesting yeah. well let's just talk about the tour de france one, one more time i mean clearly you enjoy cycling um but you've been working in cycling as a professional helping people to get a better bike fit so, you know so obviously very important when you're spending multiple hours on multiple days in in saddle so when you're watching the tour de france are you watching it as a spectator or do you find yourself watching it as a as a professional bike fit, looking and thinking, oh, he's not sitting right on that. Oh, I can tell he's, I can tell he's getting tired because he's starting to slouch, or he's, you know, he's, he's shuffling about on the saddle a bit much. Do you, and does that spoil your enjoyment? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a really good question. I know I, I tend to watch the Tour de France just thinking, um, just enjoying it as an observer. I used to work in a rugby union. I was at uh, Sale Sharks for three years, and that, that's okay. different because you tend to watch as a physio. Then you watch the game about 10 seconds behind because you're basically watching who gets up and who doesn't because yeah. <laughs> of but then the, 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 the more the, the time I do revert into what you you know at, at sort of amateur armchair expert is um, on the time trials that's where I think because if you look at road racing you know most of those guys are really dialed in they, they won't be there unless they had a good position so I often say like these people behind me you know the bike fit process that I used to apply over them with maybe with Bradley, you're talking one and two percent, which is very important. And the high end can be the difference between winning and losing. Most of the people who come in our clinic, they don't know what they don't know, and it's thirty percent, you know, which is fantastic to give someone. But um, in the time trials, it, it's just it's hilarious to see the difference because it's much more. And it's obviously a lot of your um, listeners will be, you know, time trialing is bloody bloody hard to do. <laughs> it's, you know, it's uncomfortable to be aerodynamic and powerful at the same time. All those things, and I do. Yeah, I do have a little chuckle to myself sometimes that um, if, if I let you, I won't name any names, right? But considering how important, look at the Tour de France this year. G's only two minutes behind, and if Finnegard isn't really good at time trialing and he gets closer, that could be the difference, the long time trial. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the history, generally you have to be able to climb and do long time trials to win the Tour de France these days. You would not believe how little effort some people, some teams put into that. It's just, mm-hmm. and I know teams who, um, 
I now I've worked with people who work with them and they put all this effort and uh, and they just chuck it all out the window. <laughs> it's just, a, and and that's really easy to see when you know, yeah. The great one was that uh, most bike fitters would always want to get hold of a Berto Contador, even though it was so great. He, I was just going to, I was going to mention Contador actually, yeah, because he, he the classic shuffler up and down the saddle. But yes. I, I counter that because they all said, oh, was his position right? Was he on the wrong saddle? Was it? I would say, yeah, there are, there are many different reasons. Yeah, moving around on the saddle too much is ordinarily a good uh, a good sign that maybe things aren't as good as they can be. You know, there's something you're working around something. But there's also um, a cohort of people who basically, um, power is as high as you can, as far forward as you can. And I think Contador might have been just self-optimizing, going forward, forward, drilling, drilling, and then he couldn't cope anymore. He just literally moved backwards to reset the button and do it again. If you look at it, you often see some people like that. And I've worked with some riders who say, look, we can make them more solid, but they actually go slower. <laughs> so right. it's not all about being dead still. Now, a really good example of that is, you remember Paula Radcliffe when she was running, used to shake her head like crazy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But when somebody, some, somebody quite rightly from first principle said, imagine how much faster she goes. She kept her head, head still. And but she didn't, did this she? This is absolutely true. They tried to make a run without moving ahead, and she got slower and slower and slower. And in the end, they just said, run whichever way you want. And the times went straight back up. Now, that's something I heard a coined a phrase years ago called you know, preferred movement pathway. Your preferred movement pathway of jumping over a box is different to mine. And that's the same for cycling, running, walking, everything. We're all completely individual. We, it's, a, it's a combination of our injury history, our flexibility, our strength, our approach to life, everything. So in some ways, I recoil from the people who go, oh, that's wrong, you know, because really? Well, how do you know? How do we How do we know that that's not actually the fastest way he goes by moving around loads? So, yeah. so a perfect example of that in the triathlon world is when you get um, particularly novice coaches looking at somebody in the swimming pool yeah. and they'll say, oh, there's so much wrong with that technique. Well, hold on a minute. That guy's an Olympic champion. Yeah. <laughs> He's not doing too bad, is he? Because he always comes out at the front of the group. <laughs> yeah, but if you could just stop him sweeping his arm under there, uh, his, his cadence is too low, his arm comes over too high, you, you know, uh, he's breathing once. It's like, yeah, but if you change it, what, what impact are you going to have? Are you actually going to make him any faster? And actually, if you make him faster in um, in the current World Triathlon Series type of racing and he gets out of the water in front of everybody, he'd be a bit like Jess Learmonth. He'd be riding on his own or she'll be riding on her own. And then you're actually at a disadvantage. You'd be better off swimming in the pack, using a bit less energy, and then riding in the pack and saving it for the run. All right? So there's tactics involved. So there's, is, yeah. is there any benefit? And how much? And then you go back to age groupers, and they'll say, well, oh, he's, they're doing this and that. Um, and this is this is perhaps where the physio comes in. Um, I, I used to work with Jack Maitland, and we we had the Talent ID program, which was the sort of – the the sort of um, the baby of the performance centre in Leeds, if you like, because that that sort of developed into the performance centre. And when we had the Talent ID programme, we used to get these kids that were 15 and 16, including Alistair and Jonathan, and, and we'd look at them swimming and we'd look at their technique. But what we decided to do was rather than try to make wholesale changes, we would take them to see Alison Rose, who was, I don't know if you know Alison and her, yeah, yeah, Alison and Malcolm, and we'd, we'd take them to see Alison and we'd say, look, this is some video of the swimmer Right. This is this is the model we think we'd like to get to. But what we'd like you to do is to have a look at their biomechanics and tell us whether that's actually possible. Is there a reason why 
that person swims with a wide arm. Oh yeah, well actually it's because they've got tight in, tight in the shoulders due to injuries or maybe they've got lack of thoracic rotation. Is it going to make a? Are we going to? Are we going to be able to actually make any changes? You know, if we start giving them different technique uh, drills to do in the pool, is that going to help, or is it going to be beyond them physically? Um, and with some of the people, um, we we found that actually making changes would have made things worse. So we had to work with what we got and trying to make the best out of it. And I guess that must be the same for when you're fitting somebody to a bike. Is you, you, you know, you can't. Yeah. You can't physically just re rebuild somebody, can you? To to get them in. The absolutely. Right position. So, but our process is. Um, you're absolutely right, and it, it, I often have a, a phrase that you know, the rider is adaptable and the position is adjustable. As uh, physios who've worked, I've worked across three Olympics, gone knows how many Grand Tours and stuff, and looked after some pretty special people. I can tell you now, you're absolutely right. It's much easier to change a hard thing like a bike, <laughs> and than it is to change a human being. You know. That was my job, making sure that those human beings stayed as good as they could and adaptable. And it takes a huge amount of effort, both from the athlete, the coach, the support staff, you know. And some people are much more adaptable than others. So I have a little mm. phrase as well, one of my books, where when I wrote my first book, I reflected on my, and I said a very controversial thing, actually, Simon, stood up at a conference, a bike fit conference, and said, not everybody needs a bike fit. <laughs> oh, well, that's interesting down. then, because I, I had a, I have a question actually. Does do do people need a bike yeah. fit? You know, this is my partner. So I asked her what what um yeah. um what she thought, and she said, "Well, what about if somebody says I'm really comfortable on my bike and I, I don't I don't get any back pain, I don't get any saddle sores, I feel great when I get off. Do I really need to have a bike fit?" Well, it depends. Yeah, this is the is the killer question. Yeah. So when I uh, sat down to write the book, I reflected on. Why do some people really need bike fit and why some people don't? I'll give you two examples of relatively famous people, and one of them is very current at the moment. So Geraint Thomas is an incredibly strong, adaptable athlete, right? Apart from when he falls off and crashes, of course, right? But, but which he does far too often. Yes. But in terms of um, adaptability <laughs> training plan, Simon, you could write him a training plan. I could write him a training plan. Anybody could write Geraint Thomas a training plan. He wouldn't break. He wouldn't get injured. He'd do all of it and he'd get stronger. He is amazing, right? He once also rode half a stage of the Tour de France on the wrong spare bike and didn't even notice. That's because he's what I call a macro absorber. In other words, position doesn't break it. If it's a change in position, it'd be quite dramatic. He, he can work with it and he'll get round it. It doesn't mean he's optimal. That doesn't mean, that's not the same thing. Comfortable, comfortable, I'm all for comfort. I'm it's one of my major driving things, and it's what most people want, first of all. We'll come to that later. But it doesn't mean you're optimal sometimes. The other side of it, and I'll come back to whether who needs a bike fit, is uh, micro-adjusters. Famously, Eddie Merckx, after he, um, he had his nasty accident, was a, went out of an Allen key and would change his saddle position two or three mil every single day, had an Allen key in his back pocket. Ben Swift, he's all right with me saying this, because he, he once came in with four Pinarello bikes on a Friday afternoon at four o'clock and said, mechanics say they're all the same saddle height and they're not. I know one of them's wrong. And I measured them with our retail system, which two million accurate. And I said, four times, they're all the same, Ben. They're all the same. I'm really bored. It's Friday afternoon. And Ben, Ben is a brilliant athlete, but he's what I call on the top of it. You probably recognize this. He's on a knife edge between underperformance and injury all the time. His yeah. plateau at the top of it, high performance. He's very, very narrow. Everything has to be dialed in. And uh, I lent him one of the saddles. Uh, I think it was a physique Arioni. And I said, is this a new saddle, Ben? And he went, yeah. Is that the one that feels higher? He goes, yeah. It's just new. So he he was literally sensitive that the saddle wow. wasn't worn in and the saddle... So 
in answer to your question, some people very, very much need help with bike fit because they're very sensitive to the outside world. And it's what I call everyone has a bike fit window. There's no one position, Simon. There's just there's no one ideal position, but there's definitely a window where your saddle be, where your cockpit should be, and where your pedal should be, the contact points. Some people and to get that, so my macro absorbers, if you're one of those annoying, you know, those annoying kids you used to grow up at school with who'd just be brilliant at every sport and get yeah, faster. Yeah. And they're that's the macro absorber. They absorb everything and they adapt to it. And their their window of fit is bigger than somebody who is very sensitive to it. And that, the bike fit game is literally just that, you know. So you can enter it, and that it brings us to probably one of your next questions, Simon, which would be, you know, what what is our process? Mm. So wow. my process is we're based on um it, it wouldn't be surprising coming from a physio background, medical, we're based on um it, first and foremost, yeah, we sit down with a client and say, what is the goal for the session? And that's a bit like, you know, when you go and see the G- your GP or physio and they take your history. And if I'm really honest, the answers and everything, they tell you what the problem is then when you're talking. And mm-hmm. it's about asking the right questions and also making sure that they feel like they're listened to because that's so important. And if we don't establish what the goal of the session is, then how the hell are we ever going to tell we're going to be successful? So it's very much not, not a generic process. It has certain things that always happen, but then the fit adapts to the goal all the way through. And then we have a look at, then we have a physical look, so I call the off-bike thing, we have a look at the athlete. So very closely related to what you said, how adaptable is this person? And we look at certain key markers that are important for cycling and that goal. And then we get you on the on the bike. We, we use retool just because I've been using it forever. It's just a measuring tape. We don't fit to numbers. Um, it, but it gives us a really good idea where the opportunities are to go. Measure the bike. We use saddle pressure because we have that here. And we've got a lot of experience using that. Although saddle pressure is a really interesting one where people often get obsessed with where the pressure goes, but oh, well, pressure has to go somewhere. <laughs> it's, good, it's how how we cope with it, basically. That's why it's better, better than that. So it's not all about reducing pressure. And then um, we bring it all together and we say, right, what this, this is the plan. Now, um, What I, we don't really sell anything. We have some very special expensive saddles. I have speed play pedals because some people really need them. But we're not our business model um, and performance model is not based on selling you stuff. So often we're not going to change everything at once because I don't know how you know what's working. So if you had an athlete, for example, in a training plan and you're like, you can't seem to get the power. If you change the whole training plan to try and mm-hmm. get that power, how do you know what's working, what isn't? Because all of a sudden something else changes, you know? So we very much, sometimes people leave and we're going to go, we're going to change this first of all, and then I want your feedback on that. And then if I, then I'm going to go to this and we go down a priority order of changing things. So I would say it's a process of um, evolution rather than revolution. So um, you talk about the saddles. I had Daniel Sharder on from Jebiumized. Uh, do you do some? Do you do any work with him? Yeah, was, that's the system we use, and uh, right. um, that's um, I know Daniel for a long time when he first started uh, um, launching the Jebiumized system. So yeah, we've uh, I've spoken at their conference in Germany as well. So yeah, interesting. You know that the kit that that, that that is it's adapted from the equine world. So it used to be used on horses, mm-hmm. and then. They probably told you that they used to put the saddle on top of that. So the horse is the most important thing <laughs> in that world. But um, yeah, so we've used it a lot. So you're, a, I mean, I love the fact that you're a physiotherapist. I go to see some of the girls at Alison Rose's clinic. I see Louisa. She's the, she's my physio, although I've seen some of the others. But Louisa, I call her the white witch. Some of the techniques that Alison and, and Louisa are using, which is about round fascia and getting their fingers in and messing around with your jaw to correct posture and all that stuff is just woo woo um 
but but it works. And I and I go, I go and see Louise now once a month as a proactive measure to keep me on the straight and narrow rather than a reactive measure. And and it works, you know. And at fifty eight, it's important for me not to get injuries. So because um, yeah. you you end up taking longer to recover and um, etc cetera, etc. Cetera. But yeah, um, the thing that I've learned about them is is that they're very much into the holistic process and understanding the person what makes that person tick now you talked about knowing your athletes you know the difference between uh, Grant Thomas and Ben Swift for example um when you're doing a bike fit how how important is it for you to understand that person yeah a um, really good point so yeah we always allow two hours for our process and sometimes it's quicker than that sometimes it's very very longer than that but you're absolutely through the whole process. It, uh, there's a lot of um, data gathering, some of that, but a lot of time to talk. And what you're doing is assimilating. And um, so, what I'm looking for is where, 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 how anxious they are. For example, is like you know picking up on the things that are important to somebody. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I'll give you one bunch of clients or cohort people you see, um, and you might recognise this again. People, coaches out there might recognise it. They, some people are very obsessive and they want everything absolutely right and correct. Mm-hmm. And through that, my process, I tried, if you start to pick up on that, I'm trying to start to relax them. I have a phrase where I say, look, what we're going to be doing today is finding out where we're going to spend effort, time and money that's going to make a difference rather than just spaffing it everywhere. <laughs> everything. We're going to spend, so rather than, a, you know, rather than a monkey throwing a dart at a dartboard, we're going to be the world champion darts player and then nearly hitting the bullseye and we we're going to be trying to how we're going to do that differently and and some people do obsess about the wrong things and and oh sorry unnecessary things so we say you know so it's important that, as well as to find out what needs to change or what's wrong i often say there's no bad positions there's only better positions you know to make you feel better about yourself take away that negativity and just say look this is you know that it's, it's just as important to tell people what they got right you know so this is this is correct I think I really like this. I think this is working with you well. You know, we're not. I don't think we should change that. The thing about BiFit, which is really complicated, and makes so really, we only do two a day because they're so. Some of them are very emotionally involved because of who I am. I see some people are quite broken, and you know, it's important to get people back cycling or doing the robust. And some of them are obviously very high performing athletes, and it's their job. But we often say, you know, take them for that journey and, and say to them, look, we got to. I've got my point now. <laughs> But um, it's uh, reassuring them that we're going to be getting to that place where they want to be and listening to them. Mm-hmm. So you 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 do your assessment. Um, let's talk about well, let's talk about triathletes because that's most of the people who are going to be listening. So um, most triathletes have have <laughs> they have that old N plus one type of thing, you know, about bikes. There's always there's always room for another one, um, but they'll definitely have a winter bike and they'll have a they'll have a triathlon bike. Now I know a lot of people will go on about right. I need to get a bike fit before I do my race, so they'll focus on getting the tri bike fitted. And of course that's important, but they'll probably spend seventy five percent a year riding that winter bike or their their road bike. Um, but yeah. they never think they never think about getting that fitted. So uh, I um, I find that quite strange. Yeah. When you're doing TT bikes and tri bikes, is it ever possible for you to find comfort and aero combined, or is it about finding the best compromise for them? Um, that's a really good point, Simon. Yeah, we see a lot of people who've been to wind tunnels, uh, <laughs> and I don't blame the wind tunnel for this because they, they go to the wind tunnel and say, "Give me the most aero position." That's what the wind tunnel will do, you know. Um, um, and then they come 
to see us a few months later saying, I can't hold that. That was my job at British Cycling and Team Sky. Was that we find the most air position, Phil, make that work. You know, so you work on the athlete or the rider, you know, make them more adaptable. But sometimes um, what, the, what, what hasn't happened in, in, a, in a purely aero session is that physio recognition of like, they're not going to be able to cope with that. You know, they can't cope with that. Yeah, so we're going to, what, what I try to do is, because um, of my background, it was obviously, you know, I, I so I came up with a term of the three pillars of fit for the book, which was, uh, which kind of like me, Mr. Borman came up with. But the first pillar is power. You need power to go anywhere. The second pillar is aero. And the third pillar is comfort, stroke, sustainability. Now, the reason why the stroke sustainability is that I used to talk to Dave Browse about that. And he said, I don't pay Bradley so many million euros a year to be comfortable. <laughs> and I countered that with, yeah, but you want him to finish the time trial, don't you? <laughs> it's like, and you go, yeah. So this is, I think the sustainability, comfort, I, I, I have no problem with the word comfort, but it's been hijacked to mean lazy. Right? And it isn't, it isn't. Because if you've got a really good aero position, but you can only sit in it for three to four seconds before you shift and move out of it, you're moving out of that silhouette. So then that's disturbing the air even more probably more than the gains you kept from keeping in it so you're absolutely right it is a compromise what i think a lot of people miss is that you can be quite aero but if you've not if you for example if you drop your front end generally lower at the front starts to get you more and more aero and then we come into like where you are you know how tough you should be and so on and so forth but at some point uh, you don't want that to compromise power so for example if you you're still riding the same crank length that you ride your road bike on my golden rule is your TT crank length is five mil lower than your optimal road crank length. All right. Um, um, because well, you think about it, you're closing up the hips so much at the front by going lower and lower that when the crank length's the same, you're closing the hip. That A, makes breathing difficult. B, makes your hip flexor more and more tight. So we've had great success for triathletes, for example, in transferring to the run. Most of your listeners will understand feeling, you know, when you get off the bike after the, the ride and the first few minutes, they feel a bit, stiff into the run and they can't get their pelvis in the back that's your psoas muscle that's all it is it's the psoas muscle which is one part of your hip comes off the bottom three lumbar vertebrae into your hip it's been sitting in an inner range flexion for the last god knows how long you've been on, on the ride and it needs to give before you can get going we've had massive success with um, very famous triathletes reducing that and getting them into the run quicker that's a simple change you know so rather than trying to make the athlete work on the hip flexor forever it's a bit like crank lamps a bit like um, it's big sort of finger mine but it doesn't and we change it now because um it doesn't affect performance we we now know the science is stronger there it just changes your gearing so given that what that parameter should be manipulated to make you feel more comfortable so if you can imagine you get a really error position you've got to move like this i'm now moving my hands up and down wildly for those people and then it's a bit like being a duck flapping like crazy under the water or a duck is just going serenely pedaling you know it just it just makes sense you know so i think uh yeah, it, and then do you know what I think the most important thing choice is in uh, a TT or aero position is the saddle, one hundred percent, because you're rotated forward on in your pelvis in that time job. So if you can ride a road saddle on TT bike and it allows you to do that, fantastic. Go, but a lot of people can't, and all of a sudden that saddle needs to be different. Either, for example, softer in the nose so that you can cope with it, or you know, a lot of athletes use an ISM saddle, which has a split nose, which tends to work with your pubic rami a bit better. There's no one suits all solution, but I definitely think saddle choice becomes incrementally and disproportionately important in a good aero position. 
I've got a few questions on saddle health and saddle fit in a bit. Let's go back to this aero assessment, right? So you talked about finding the best position. Um, I mean, also going back to those three pillars of fit, you've got three data points now, power, aero and comfort. And I guess if you join those together, you end up with a sweet spot. And what you want to try and do is spend as much time within that sweet spot as possible, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes exactly. it's all about putting the power down. Sometimes it's about being aerodynamic. Sometimes it's about being comfort. But as long as you stay within that sweet spot, you're probably going to be you're probably going to be pretty much optimal. Yeah. yeah. And and exactly. the long and the longer the race, I guess you might be more towards comfort than power and aero. The shorter the race, it's more towards power and aero than comfort. Exactly, exactly. And it's uh, uh, getting that right balance with those. For example, being really aero, if it closes up your hip too much. And then you've got a massive dead spot, the sort of thing. It compromises your power, you know, and it's unsustainable. So it's getting those, it's almost like I always remember back in the day when we used to have our MIDI hi-fi systems with those little and then <laughs> the things going up and down. It's just getting that right balance between those things. Absolutely. Okay. So you you get an individual who comes in, you get them yeah. sitting on the bike, you do all the talking to them, you understand the personality, you do your physio stuff and you look at how how much range they've got around the hips and the hamstrings and the upper back and all of that stuff. And then you get them on the bike and then you send them away. Um, that's just the start of your work, isn't it? And that's just the start of the triathletes work. They can't expect to go away with that bike and get on um, something that they've spent five or 10 minutes in your studio and then ride that for 180 kilometers. I, I presume that they've got to do some work um, with their mobility so that they're actually able to sit on that bike for five or six or seven hours. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, what we do is we tend to, we can refer to uh, the, the other book I wrote about strength and conditioning for cyclists. Uh, I mean, getting the position working with the athletes, what we concentrate on here, because that's what our expertise and what they don't know. So that's the, the main focus when we're in here. And then secondly, when we go back out to, yeah, sending the athlete out. So it's something I'm working on a lot of the time at the moment. Time you're absolutely right. You don't want it to discontinue, and because geographically we see people from all over the country and internationally, that's sometimes a challenge. If somebody's got a mobility problem, you know, how do we help them out? You know, where they are because it might be that you know we'll say, look, I think you need to go and see a physio. With the elite athletes, it's fine because they normally have that package around them. But we'll highlight it and say. But, the, but I, 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 used, I refer to something that I used to call with the um, um, when a lot of the younger riders towards the end of my time at British Cycling Team Sky would come to, they'd all obsess about going to the wind tunnel and we invented a package of measures that they had to achieve. It was called earn the right to go to the wind tunnel, which is like, there's no point in going to a wind tunnel if you're the stiffest, most inflexible person in the world cause, and, you're, and you're weak as pest, you know? <laughs> so it's just earn the right. But there are, I, I, I'm not a physio I'm going to be. I'm going to end up being controversial here now. I'm not a physio who gives people twenty exercises. Um, and I gave you a nice a story about that. When Bradley Wiggins joined Garmin, they were assessed by this back in 2009. He they, he was assessed by a California outfit with their training camp, right? And he came in at 4:30 one day for some treatment, and he put CD because everything was on CDs about that down in front of me. He said, "I've just done all these exercises that the physios told me to do." And I haven't had time to ride my bike today. <laughs> he had 23 different exercises they're giving him. Now, every one of those exercises will make anybody move better. All right. Mm -hmm. It's not just a bit. 
but you have to weigh it up with the training program and what the ultimate goal is. He's paid to be an elite cyclist. You know, he's very good at it, you know. So what I think sometimes, we, um, and what my profession, I'd be slightly critical of it. Oh, no, but actually very critical of it is we don't listen to the evidence and that most people aren't compliant with stretching and strength work and rehab. They do one or two bits of it. So what I try to do is, my method is distill that down and make a contract with the eye and say, I think you need to do these two or three things and you need to do them every single day when you're riding, right? Mm. So, for example, I'll give you a thing on that. I think the biggest difference in thoracic, uh, sorry, in, in, in aero, um, in aero position is your thoracic mobility. So you're, because it affects your ability to look up the, look up and down the road. So the worst thing anyone can do is put their TT bike on their turbo and look down at a screen all day long because it's not realistic. No. The greatest, the greatest aero position I have ever seen is Ed Clancy, man one team pursuit, right? And you ask Bradley and a lot of people, they're all saying Ed's the best. East to ride his time trial bike from home firth in the middle of the peaks down to Manchester, about that's mm. two and a half, about two hours there and back. He literally just molded himself into it. So I would say there is there is, you do you can you do need to work on your mobility, hamstring length, for example, because and people will say, well, why do you need hamstring length? Well, basically, if your hamstring's like you can't rotate your pelvis forward and get your back flat and get that. So hamstring length, thoracic mobility, making sure that you've got those things. Um they're, they're key. But in once the position has been settled on and decided, the more you can ride it, the more yeah. you can mold yourself into it. Well, that's it becomes that job. That that's that's another thing that does frustrate me is um I speak to people and go, well, I've two weeks to the race now. So, uh, or, or I hear people say, it's two weeks to the race now. So I need to get dust off the tri bike and get it out. I'm like, you, why have you not been riding it as much as possible? You know, during the yeah. winter, ride it on your turbo. Well, I can't ride it on there. It might break the frame. What? <laughs> you know, it's the way it's fitted into the turbo tray. If you've got something that's clamping it so much and you, you're so aggressive on it that it's folding around, you need to do something about your riding technique, not the bike. And then, it, you know, it's not a work of art. It's not something, it's not like um, a 1960s Ferrari that's worth 10 million that you only take out on a sunny day and drive it, drive it uh, yeah. uh, for a few miles. It's, it's a bike and you need to be, you and that bike need to be as one. And the only way to do that is to ride the flipping thing. Exactly, exactly. And and then, and then you talk about, you know, TT is harder for handling, cornering, in and out. I guarantee nearly, we used to have these things called um, what it takes to win models at BC. And we look at an, a, 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 a medal rather than a rider. We look at the medal and say, what did it mm-hmm. take to win the medal? And we've got the right riders. You know, you look at all the things you do, Simon. Have we got the power? Have we got this? Have we got that? But I guarantee most people, because <laughs> you're amateurs, you haven't got maybe that input. Is like, it won't be the lack of power that costs you on your time trial probably because most people they're going to commit to that they'll do the work but it'll be it will be like I haven't spent enough time on my time trial bike so I waste loads of time breaking and and getting into a corner and getting out it's, they're, they're massive gains there <laughs> in fact up. I was um, I was watching the Giro recently and uh, they had one of the time trials on and one of the guys who was um, the better TT riders was passing um, one of the riders who wasn't, who was just trying to get through the stage, you know, because he's a domestic. Yeah. And he, he, but they were talking at the the commentators were talking about um, the handling, and he said, "Oh yeah, so and so, look, he'll spend a lot of time on his bike. Watch the way he comes through that corner. He he set it up like a racing car, a racing motorbike. You know, took the right angle in, was in the aero position, didn't need to let off the power at all. Whereas the other guy went in too tight, came out too wide, nearly hit the barrier." You know, and he was saying, you can tell he doesn't ride that bike much. And um, that that goes back to what you were saying about people who just don't give it, don't give it enough thought. They don't put enough effort into it. And that's, 
you know, again, I don't, I, I guess I've got to try athletes who, who are like that. I, I, I don't, I'd honestly say for some people, it, I'd rather they rode a road bike position rather than a TT bike. So I reckon they probably get around faster. Because yeah. you know, because if it's that difficult, if they haven't got the time, if they haven't got the flexibility, you, got a bit, you have to cut your cloth where you can find it, you know, and just go, let's just go for a really good road position that you can lay a lot of power down. You'd be fairly aero. But you're getting in and out of those corners, you know. It's about it's horses for courses, you know. It really is. It's just, um, yeah, obviously, over the longer the event, 110 miles. But I'll give you another example. Of that a lot of people at the moment, with, you know, with the high hand um, position at the moment at the front with the cockpit, yeah. a lot of it. I think a, a lot of people mistake that as being more aero in itself. What I think it does is allow a very low front end, because do you know when you if you've got the hand, the bars used to be flat and you, your TT position sells really high, your back angle was low. You're like a fried egg falling off the front of a frying pan. You have to use a lot of effort in your upper body to push yep. back. Yep. I'm convinced, in fact, I think I probably know, that that very that high high end, high end bar position basically gives you something to push back against. It's like doing a, a plank flat hand or a plank with your hands raised up. It's a lot easier. So mm-hmm. that means the back end can relax and you can get into it. You, know, you can really start to lay the power down rather mm-hmm. than worrying about, oh, my God, I'm going to fall off the front of the bike. So many people feel like that, you know. They go, "Oh, I just I think I'll like, they put this," they and sometimes it's subconscious. They're spending a lot of effort trying to actually stay on the bike, you know. And I'm, yeah. so, but as per usual, yeah, it, it's hard though. And to sim- I have to sympathise with people who are trying to achieve this because let me give you one example of where aer- aerodynamics and marketing gets missold is that you know aero bikes, big bugbear of mine. <laughs> Do you know how much? the frontal area of a bike is compared to you. It's about nine to 10%. Mm-hmm. So it's far more important what position you're in. Than well, that's the- that's um, something that comes up uh, or has come up several times in, in talking with other guests is, you know, 80% of the drag on the bike is you. So actually, yeah. if you're going to think about should I be, where should I be investing my money? Um, think about your bike helmet. Think about getting yeah. the optimal, the optimal bike position. Think yeah. about think about skin suit maybe think about just um watching what you eat and just becoming a little bit more svelte you know absolutely um absolutely. Do, um doing a little bit more mobility so you can get into an aero position and hold it for longer rather than sitting up and, and being a being a, a sail and then once you've done all of those things you know then look at the things that are going to make the most difference but uh, a, a nice pair of zip wheels uh, is very very sexy and gets all the comments and is great for your instagram stuff but actually it's far less beneficial and far more costly than some yeah. of the other processes isn't it yeah and that, and maybe then, that's but, the problem is it's it's about whether it's going to look or look good on instagram or as much as it, whether it's going to make a difference yeah that's absolutely right and i think one of your questions might be about um just because it's relevant here if i jump in Simon, about um, off the bike strength training. I think we meant you, you, yeah, you yeah. Were mention. Yes. Just at this point, it is a good, is a, you know, because people like stories and analogies. And I think it, it, often when you, you hear about the, the very best of people doing something like that. So, my, my, I mean, words in pro cycling, I can tell you that pro cycling really doesn't pay enough attention to off the bike training at all. You know, it, it, for to endurance cycling, it, it's, it's fixated on. The, the training on the bike and so on and so forth but it's well documented in the research that if you if you're clever enough and smart enough and can write the training plan that that can co-current training with resistance training in a gym really does lift your performance it just takes a lot of 
planning, if that makes sense, and then really knowing yourself. But I'll give you a great example where when Bradley Wiggins won the world time trial title, he did a 16-week week training program before that. They then tapered for. He literally put the same gym we have in British Cycling in his house because he identified at the moment, at that time, Tony Martin was you know, winning every year. And on that course in Northern Spain, he Bradley needed more grunt, you know, more an out and out power to get to where he needed to win. And he obviously won it. But there's a commitment where when I first met Bradley, I would say he was like a stick insect. And he, if you blew on him, he'd fall over. Not anymore. By the time, <laughs> by the time he finished, by the time he finished his career, and I, I think sometimes people don't give him enough credit in pound for pound riding. You know, they talk about boxers going up the weight divisions and down. You think about Bradley winning the tour at 68 kilos. And then winning an Olympic gold at 82 on a time on a TP. That's a big difference, you know. To, and he and he did. But so and if he could he, if he can do it, you know, and it, it wasn't that difficult. It was, you know, put a very fancy leg press machine in his house, fair enough, you know. And I do think cyclists have to be careful with resistance training because um cycling, unfortunately, is a very, very two-dimensional sport that doesn't lend itself well to com- you know, going in a gym and completing complicated Olympic weights. So in no way would I say just start squatting massive heavy weights because that's a dangerous exercise. But if you choose the right exercises that can work for you, yeah, I, I think people can hoover up massive changes in in their performance. I'm, I remember spending some time with Dave Brails and Shane Sutton on a, uh, a, bike, a, a cycle um, ride around Spain, a charity cycle ride. They were friends with Dave Lockeran, you know, from Planet X. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so, because I knew Dave, Dave said, oh, why don't you spend, you know, why don't you have dinner with us? So we we uh, we had dinner with them every night. It was fascinating. And I remember asking Shane, well, what about strength training then? Because this is when he, they were involved with the, the, the track team and, and weightlifting. He said, well, we, we don't really know if being able to squat a lot of weight um, correlates directly with being able to sprint faster but we think there's a link. We're not sure. So it's better to do it than not do it. And of course, as a track cyclist, probably having that explosiveness and sort of rate of force development is probably quite important. Um, but I, I recall um, seeing Katie Ledecky, you know, the swimmer, the Olympic swimmer, um, and her coach said, look, we have a strength coach for Katie and we're very clear on what his role is. I want him to build resilience in Katie. So she turns up to as many swim sessions as possible because consistency yep. in the pool is the key to her winning Olympic golds, not being able to bench press more or do more pull-ups. However, yep. we recognize that being robust enough to absorb the huge volumes of training and being able to turn up as much as possible, is a, there's a key link there. And I think that's probably the same for most endurance athletes is can you build a framework that's capable of absorbing the training so that you can recover it and do it again. Not can you improve your deadlift? Exactly. 100% agree, Simon. Uh, and, and I've got a little diagram in one of the books, which describes the macro absorber micro adjuster that really describes that. Well, it's like, if you, um, if we built, so performance is like building a house, yeah. And an event. And if we start with very narrow, pretty poor foundations and we start building up, you know, that how that performance has got more chance to falling over us, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, I, it won't I, go as high either. Yeah, and if you if you build in that good movement techniques with with a bit of resistance and good strength, that basically widens your base massively. So as we go up, as we go up, that base gets a bit narrower each time because the performance is getting hard. But if you if you start with a wide base, where you end up can be much much higher before you run into problems. Well, and also what you're saying, I would guess that this is you know, for recreational cyclists, but definitely recreational triathletes and at the end of longer distance races, 
I don't know if you've ever been to watch an Ironman, but what, what you see once once you go back down the field and see people coming in 10, 11, 12 hours is in the last few miles of the run, they're not challenged by their aerobic fitness. Yep. You know, they're not they're not slowing down because they can't keep the pace up and they're out of breath. They're slowing down because the biomechanics are failing. They, they, they're getting tight in the hips. They're sort of slouching in the shoulders, maybe because they've been holding onto those handlebars earlier on and they're tight in the back. And now it's sort of just cascading down through the hips. Yeah. They've got no they've they've got poor capacity in the soleus from the cycling. So now the soleus isn't working very well when they're running. So they haven't got any bounce in the stride. So they're shuffling along and it just gets worse and worse. And of course, then each step takes more energy. Yeah. And so it's, it's just a vicious circle until at some point you see them and they're walking and that's, that's all they can manage. And They'll, but if you ask them where they where they went wrong, well, I need to do more running. No, you don't need to do more running. You need to spend a bit. Of t- you need to move better. You need yeah. to have better posture, and you need to spend some time building that framework up so it can so it can carry you along more efficiently towards the end. Yes, one hundred percent agree. One hundred percent agree. Yeah, build a good base model, and uh, yeah, if that's your issue, yeah. In, in, I've not been to Ironman. I need to go to one, but I, I would imagine that the other thing. I, um, I, this is complete side swipe um sign but i don't know how much you invest in this but um we talk about this so we talked a lot about moving better being stronger you know being in the right position and it's a little bit off topic from what i do but what some of our bike fit process and we touched on it is that making sure that you can breathe you know mm-hmm. and i think breathing is really overlooked in terms of performance because there's a really great book i don't know if you read it by a guy called james nester called breathe yes. well i have to uh, James hasn't been on the program, but I had Patrick McEwen on who wrote yeah. um, The Oxygen Advantage, and they're, they're both coming at it from very similar p- positions. Yeah. Oh, so you covered this before, but I, I, I truly believe, you know, the, human, the humans were not as good as breathing as you used to be, you know? And I, <laughs> I think one point on that is that, you know, I often encourage my athletes maybe to, or, or people I've seen, you know, I love Pilates, yoga. I call yoga organized stretching with breathing. That's all it is, really. But it's great because if you do any of that, you're only going to get better. You know, you don't have to obsess about it, but touching on some of those things in life. And um, it, it just it just strikes me that sometimes we spend all this time, you know, people obsessed about being 3% more aero. But what if you can lift your oxygen shape by 20% and be more efficient with that, you know? And it, it, it definitely, definitely is. But from a purely medical side of it, one thing that really angers me and is that and there's some very famous professional cyclists you might know use inhalers you know where this umbrella term of asthma which most people doctors give you it, it's such we have a we're here with the MIP where I work we have a world-class um, respiratory physician who works here and he's, he's literally brilliant and literally everyone who comes in with the term asthma they end up with something else like vocal cord dysfunction you know so it's so misunderstood and I'd encourage anyone who's been given the term asthma and they don't think maybe it's quite right or they're not going to really go and see a specialist because it's it's just it's just a, it's like saying it's just an umbrella term it really is you know we, we probably shouldn't talk about why there's so many members of the pro peloton of course self-butamol <laughs> inhaler should we <laughs> that's a oh, whole well, different yeah. subject <laughs> well um, you, you know the um norwegian cross-country ski team are called team asthma don't you i did not know <laughs> Because every single one of them's got a TUE for. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, but, uh, but the yeah, anyway. the, the breathing thing. I mean, I, I do spend a lot of time. I've I've um I've had quite a, a number of podcast guests who uh, into yoga, into movement patterns. Um, I had. Have you ever come across Kelly Starrett? Yes. Um, oh, he's a legend. He is a legend. <laughs> the, supple, 
the supple <laughs> leopard and he has this he has this thing now called the ready state but um you know a bit like a, and that's the whole point about the supple leopard is a leopard lies there asleep but when a gazelle goes running past it doesn't sort of go oh hold on a minute i need to warm up first it's ready um and he's talking about integrating movement into your everyday life and um but but we talk about breathing as well and i, I always remember watching you know, you're watching somebody like Nairo Quintana, you're riding up hill. He's, there's nothing to him, is there? He's, what, 55 kilos? And I, I, he's riding up a big mountain. I'm thinking, God, he's got a bit of he's got a bit of a paunch there, you know, he's, as he's breathing. But I realise yeah. that they're belly breathing. They're breathing into the bottom part of their lungs and expanding. So they're not they're not expanding the rib cage. They're breathing efficiently. And that's that, that's what enables yeah. them to stay comfortable on uh, those long climbs and stay in the right. uh, out of yeah. the red zone, isn't it? And, and I... I I like you. I do. I do think that breathing is just it's just overlooked. And if you talk to people about breathing, they go, "Well, I'm I'm 50, and I've, I'm, I must be doing okay because I'm still alive. So obviously, I'm breathing." But it, there's there's breathing, and there's breathing properly. And there's a whole. When I spoke to uh, to Patrick and James, will probably James Nestor will probably say the same thing. Is there's a lot of respiratory illnesses that are related to not breathing and not getting that full. Um, yeah ventral capacity and using it yeah. and not not exhaling from the bottom part of your lungs and etc yeah. etc et and um yeah we had, we had yeah. a famous um we had a, a female mountain biker who was really good but her performance was definitely limited by the asthmatic conditions she had i won't name obviously but um but uh we, we weren't we looked we got um uh, um one of these um expert you know the deep divers who did dive oh, free divers yeah 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 free divers that's it She's a female freediver, and she came in and worked with her for six weeks. She's never used an inhaler since. Yeah. There you go. All right. And her breathing, she says, I don't even need it. Yeah. So absolutely. I mean, it's a bit like, yeah, this whole thing about spending. We've only, got, we've only got so much time. We've only got so much money. We've only got so much effort. Where spend it where it's going to make a difference. And for some people that I think um, overlooking, you know, even if you think you breathe right, you know, are you breathing? I think it, it definitely, um, there's good evidence in it, I think, about the Wim Hof method. If you do that before thing, it has. It's. I think they've done some quite good research now. It just definitely lift your performance. Yeah. Well, it's also. I mean, if you go beyond the um, the benefits in terms of physical performance when you're active, and yes. think about how breathing um, helps with recovery. It helps yeah. you get. It helps um, st- helps with the vagal nerve and stimulating the parasympathetic nervous system, yeah. which is your rest and digest, which will if you work on that, um, then that's going to help with um, reducing cortisol and adrenaline because you're in, always switched on. Uh, it'll help with your sleep. And obviously we know then that sleep's the biggest, you know, the biggest performance tool that we can have. Um, so anything that can switch on the other side, the hormonal system that can help with recovery and is then going to have um, a, an effect on your performance, isn't it? Yeah. And, and yeah. again, it's, it's, when I get people come to me, they always want to talk about training. They always want, no, I don't think anybody's ever around me and said, can, can we talk about how I can get more sleep, Simon? Or can we talk about how I can <laughs> use some breathing practice to, infor- to, to improve my recovery? But these things have, these things have as much impact on, on your race day performance as spending another hour on the bike each week. Exactly. And, and you've touched on a point there, the very best of the uh, athletes I've ever worked with, they are by, but, whether they thought about it or by its chance, those things are all good and dialed. And um, well, you just mentioned saying Sean, he may he say he had a great phase. He used to say, Are you overtrained or you're under recovered? Which used to really confuse me. Yeah. <laughs> so, and what he was saying was, 
yeah, you put all that effort into training, but what are you doing about recovery? Because something most people just leave it to chance, you know. And it's like, mm-hmm. and um, and and then that could come to the next thing, which is, uh, I'm I'm absolutely convinced. There's a load of people. You mentioned the yellow jersey. I'm, I know people who have better numbers than that, but you never heard about them because they're always ill or injured. And yeah. the ability to know when to not train is just as important as to know when to push. If you don't push, you never get any better. But if you don't know that difference, I think that, I honestly think that's the difference between the very best and the and the ones just below. It's just well, there's um there's a, a physiologist too. He's actually he's an American guy, but he's in Norway a lot. You, he's he's come to uh, into public attention uh, a lot in recent years because he's done all this stuff for polarized training. Dr. Steven Seiler, you come across right. him? No, and he he talks about intensity discipline. Yeah, you know, on days when you're not supposed to go hard, resisting the F, resisting the urge to chase that guy that's just passed you, you yeah. know, on his brand new Colnago because he's he's having he's going out for a short ride and you're on a long ride, but he passes you, so you chase him anyway. You do a you do a Pogacar, you chase down everything. That's what I was gonna say. Pogacar needs to give him a bell. <laughs> yeah, but that so having having intensity discipline, you know, today's supposed to be recovery day, so so just go out and ride easy. Um, if if you're not feeling good, turn around. You don't need to just because your mates are going out for four hours. You don't need to go out for four hours. Turn around, and I, you know, I have I have stories from from other people I've chatted about um, about Mark Allen, the triathlete, and um, the sort of tri- Ironman legend, and Craig Alexander as well, who was. Oh yeah. Um, and those guys, when they were in Boulder riding with the 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 Wednesday ride that went out, or in San Diego. They would in January they'd routinely drop off the back or turn around and go home because that you know that they were on an easy ride and everybody else was smashing it but then come october when they went to kona look who was at the front of the field there you go there you go and that's yeah i'm i'm just to, to bring you back to my i mean i love you can tell i love talking about high performance and all those different things but you you probably want to talk to me about bike fit and to bring <laughs> you back to that you know, why would someone want to go for a bike fit is I would say not everybody needs a bike fit, but why would you leave it to chance that you're not as optimal as you can be? So mm. bring back the point about that G can, G can ride the wrong Tour de France bike and he doesn't break or get injured and he gets the end. But was he optimal then for producing power? And was it storing up things to the pot? So the one thing about bikes is they're not, they don't know you. Most people buy them off the shelf, you know. So that frame size comes with a certain crank length, handlebar width, all those things. You might choose your pedals, you know, and is that optimal? So what I tend to do is look at look at the, the person in front of me. Um, I'll give you a good example of pedals. Is um, you know if you if you've got a particular movement pathway that's a little bit more complicated, like you externally rotate your your feet, so you walk like a duck, or you know, so more women have wider wider hips, so the stance with it's like. And Shimano is that you know I don't mind Shimano pedals a look, and if you've got no problem with them, I'm not going to change it, but. Is that the optimal process? Well, speed play, which has a bit more adjustability, mm-hmm. and a bit, but all of a sudden, it's not about it's not about the pedal. It's about what it allows you to do. So rather than taking all that rotation, that because again, I'm slightly controversial. I, I'm I hope I'm not going to go against you, Simon, but I'm I don't believe you can coach pedaling because it's happening too fast. <laughs> Basically, it's ninety to hundred RPM. So if I tell you, oh yeah, but your brain can't do it. What we do is we take gait onto a bike. Okay, we even Tour de France cyclists walk more than they cycle. So gait, our pattern of gait, we take it onto a bike. And what you need to do is find the right pedal system and the setup that allows you to transfer your inherent inbuilt way of moving around God's great earth onto a bike. You know, so what we often and I think one of your questions was going to be around, you know, if you're going to buy a super new duper bike, 
do you have a bite fit before or after? Mm. And I would always say, we meet some really smart clients. In fact, I'll have to go in a bit because we've got one coming in. But um, basically, it, it can be afterwards, as long as, it, but afterwards, if it's very rare people buy the wrong frame and everything. But if you if you if you're dropping a lot of money on a bike, it makes sense to do it before because some bike brands now are quite, um, I think, forward thinking and will allow you to change certain things. Sorry, sorry. No, what I was going to say is that our, a friend of mine runs a bike fitting company, and I remember him telling me a story about a guy coming with a five grand bike and said, "Oh, I hope it fits." And <laughs> we 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 talked about that, and he said that the thing is there are some people who have that you know long long legs and short torsos and yep. there are some people who have um, long torsos and short legs and there are definitely some bike frames that tend to have a shorter top tube and some that have a longer top yep. tube and i guess if you had a short torso and you and you'd inadvertently bought a, a bike that looked beautiful but it had a long top tube that's going to make it more challenging to get a right fit there than it is the other way around so yeah. hence my question really is if you can do you have the bike fit beforehand which i think is you're probably saying you should do yeah, I think you can because then you can manipulate. You know, you can correctly spec the crank length. Um, some companies won't let you change that, but some will. You know, and handlebar width. What to look out for? What? Well, then you're absolutely right. You know, bikes are designed for the normal distribution curve, and if you fall either side of that because your anthropology, you know, that your leg length or your torso length means that you, you, you need to get the, the frame that allow one of those two, and then adapt the other things. You know, so absolutely, and it normally works out really, really well. Um, you know, and we, we give people a steer. We often you know look at the goal as well you know so if the goal is race across america <laughs> then it's not it's not the most aggressive position in the world it's a you know you do this but if someone tells me i want to do lands end john mcgregor tour i want to do my first iron man i'm never going to do an iron man again i just want mm-hmm. to do it it's a tick off thing I, I want to get around not right let's go for comfort and sustainability and power this is all it's about you know it's about getting around there you've told me that you know craig alexander or you know some of the people we've seen in here yeah very different <laughs> yeah, uh... right. I know you've got to go. Um, let's get on to something a bit more specific. I've got this annoying little boil. Oh, here we go. Right. And yeah. it, it's always in the same position, which probably yeah. says there's something about the way I sit on the saddle. Yeah. I, I don't know if you can tell um, from this, but my, this right shoulder of mine is slightly dropped. Yep. Can you see that there? It's slightly yep. shorter. It's I, I, I fell off my bike a few years ago and broke my collarbone. And yeah. Um, they, they said there was, because I wanted to swim again, they said there was no need to put a, um, a plate in because that would have actually made it more comfortable. I don't have any problems swimming, but it does, you know, they're, they're, and I do a lot of strength training, a lot of mobility, and so it is balanced out, but there's always going to be some change in my structure on this side. Now, I, I noticed a photograph from a, um, a gravel ride the other day where I was climbing up a hill, I'm on the hoods, but I noticed that I was definitely dropped. Now, that might have been because I was putting some pressure down at that particular moment on that side but i do think that maybe i twist now if somebody yeah. has uh, if somebody has an, an injury like that if somebody's had um, a back injury and and that means that they sit on the saddle is is there anything we can do to change that or is bike is a bike fit really just going to try and minimize the the impact of the biomechanical issues oh that's a really good chicken and egg questions <laughs> number one you need to come in and we need to do a podcast and video about your boil, all right? And we're Brilliant. going to find it, all right? Well, the, boil, the, boils, the boil's the other thing, because I want to come back to saddles and saddle fit and saddle health as well. But um, it, I, I reckon, yeah, it's all, all human beings are asymmetrical, and your upper body can actually give you can actually give you a saddle sort because if you're if you so I've got no problem with asymmetry. All human beings are asymmetrical. Mm-hmm. A bike is completely symmetrical, and therefore 
it shows up asymmetry more than walking, running, or swimming, right? Because you've got yep. much more opportunities to change the way you're moving. So what that imposed postural symmetry does is it really highlights people's asymmetry. So that's why it comes out more in cycling. And one-sided knee pain or one-sided saddle sore is a very common thing with that, you know? So some people have, well, everyone has a functional leg length difference. Some people just cope with it better than others, you know? So if your ball's on one side, and I imagine it will be, and it might be what I call the gutters, is it? Just yeah, down between. Just on the, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's a very common. So what's happening there, that ball is your skin or your dermis's reaction to sustain friction and pressure, probably more pressure than friction if it's not breaking good. And it's happening because, and we can work that out using the sound pressure. What you've got to do is, you talked so earlier about a holistic process. You've got to join all that up and work out what's going on and then be realistic. So when you first start as a physio and a bike fitter, you think you can fix everybody, right? <laughs> so you mean to say, I can make you level. I'm telling you, I can't make you level, right? right? What I can do is make you better at coping with the asymmetry, right? Mm-hmm. And that's where our expertise comes in. For example, crank length is the volume bottom on asymmetry. So the bigger the crank length, the more you're going to see the asymmetry. So dropping crank length inherently helps people with asymmetry. So mm-hmm. that's one thing. Second thing is, what saddle you're riding, is it helping you? If one side is putting that pressure, is that saddle in the right place, first of all, position, tilt, forearm, height, to cope with that? That's complicated. And I find it's really mind-blowing, but we have a lot of expertise in working that out. And then is it the right saddle? Do you need to use chamois cream? Is it, are you using the right shore? All those things start to come into play. But I think what you've got to do first of all is establish why is it occurring where it's occurring? Because once you do that, you're, you, you're making decisions from an informed base and you can really make it, you can make good things happen. You know, mm. when you just, I have people come in, your friend who runs a business will probably say this about it. I kid you not, just over there, they'll sit down with a bag of 10 saddles, two grand's worth of kit in a bag. Which one of these is working? I go, I don't care. We're starting with that one. Why? Because I don't know if it, it could be the best style in the world. I mean, if it's not in the right place, it can't, it can't work, you know? So we do, that's how, yeah, that's how I see it. Well, I suppose I'm I'm probably like most cyclists. Is I've got the saddle that was supplied on the bike, so I've done I've done the exact opposite. I've not done anything about. I'm, I'm almost like, gee, I'm just like I'll just get on the saddle and sit on it, and it'll be, uh, you know, I've done I've done Lansing John O'Groats, I've done multi day bike rides, and I've. Um, hey, do you know what, Simon? That, that that's fantastic because it shows that, and you've probably got used to that saddle. That's another thing is like I, I we, we help in this room here. Yeah, one of the biggest companies saddle companies as well, Physique, come in here and we design saddles with them. And I, my job in designing product as well, I hate changing saddles because I'm so used to the one I've ridden all those years. Because mm. there is a bit, I, I don't like the term toughening up, but you do get used to what you use and your tissues get used to. It. So there is that. But I would say that, and it relates back to your question, who needs a bike fit and how often maybe? You're adaptable, the bike's adjustable. You're more adaptable and flexible when you're younger. You're 58. You look great for 58, by the way. All right? but, but Hard work. Definitely aren't as good as you were when you were 48. Yeah. <laughs> and the aging... Pro- so I'd say we see a lot of people who are really smart and say, look, I love cycling in, in their 50s. I just want to cycle until my 70s, 80s. And the, the beauty of cycling is nobody ends their triathlon career by running more or swimming more. They normally end up cycling more. And the reason being is not because I love it, it's because it has less eccentric forces. Mm. It's just not damaging to the body. But it might be time for, right, okay, hold on a minute. The way you used to cope with that asymmetry is now limited. The window for it has gone down. So we're going to give you a better piece of kit to deal with it or a better position yeah, or more yeah. a different position. I mean, it seems to me that, uh, you know, because most people these days spend uh, the majority of time sitting down either in a car or at a desk or, tr- or some other form of traveling, that, that, actually we're we're 
we're contributing to our body's tightness and the aging compounds that. So over 12 months, particularly as you get older, um, you're less adaptable, as you said, um, that, that it's important to revisit that bike fit just to see what changes there have been. And it, it a bit like going to, like I said about going to the physio, it's a proactive move, isn't it? So rather than rather than going to the physio and you've got a bad back or a tight hamstring and she says, well, maybe it's the bike position. You, you, you tackle these things before they become a problem. And then it's, and then it's definitely less frustrating, less painful and less costly. Yeah, exactly. I would, I would advocate that. Not everyone can afford it, not everyone's geographic, but if you can, you can do it. I think it's a, I think it's really good value sometimes. That's a, yeah. Well, and I mean, it doesn't it doesn't really make much sense to spend five grand on a bike and then say you can't afford a three hundred and fifty quid bike fit, does it? You know, and, and it, you're right. It, it does sound like a lot of money, but it's less than, uh, but it's less than ten percent of what you're paying on the bike. And um, I, I have this again. It's a controversial argument, but I have I have this heated debate with people about mattresses and saying you you, you skimp on a mattress. Which you sleep in eight hours a night, but you you spend all this money on a bike, which you ride eight hours a week. You know, it doesn't make sense. Well, well I just did a, a thing on a post on LinkedIn about. Um, so when we start the Tour de France, I'm completely with you, and I'd say to everyone, um, I would spend as much money as you can possibly afford on the thing you sleep on. One hundred percent agree. Mm-hmm. You know what though? The cost per unit cost of it comes down every night you sleep on it. Yeah, 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 yeah <laughs> anyway, absolutely. Basically, sorry, I have to go in a minute, Simon, but um, the. Um, the Tour de France, when we first entered it as Team Sky, Dale Brailsford challenged everyone and said, what are you going to do to help us win the Tour? I went, well, I'm the physio. Just make sure they're all fit. What more, more do you want? You know? But when you looked at it, well, we looked at it as a team performance, is that on the Tour de France, you change bed 18 times in 21 days and you don't have any choice of the hotel you're going to. It's given to you by the ASL. So it could be a really poor camping yell, you know, often is. Um, it could be really nice. And yet sleep is so important. So that's where we had the bed in the bag idea and, you probably know we put four yeah. individually graded temper mattresses or one memory foam with burn sheets on them so that if you've got road rash, you don't stick to them. And you know what? The riders love that. Imagine doing that event. Imagine and going, right, I know where I'm sleeping tonight. I know I know it's going to be comfy. I don't know about you. I go, I go, if I go to a conference and things like that, oh, I'm traveling, I'm always thinking, oh, it's better going to be rubbish. I mean, my neck will be in pain because I haven't got my neck pillow. And, and I take my own pillows. My friends laugh at me. We went, to, Bel- we went to Belgium. On the, we went on the ferry, so we drove from Leeds and went over to Hull. And uh, we were going into the cabin in the in the ferry overnight. And my friend says, "What's that?" I say, "It's my pillow." What's that for? Well, so I get a good night's sleep. And they'd laugh at it, but they were all like uh, later on, like uh, a couple more of them have started taking the pillows as well. So uh, it's catching on. Oh, listen, Phil, I, I know you've got to go. Um, one final thing, then: what's the easiest fix? Apart from picking up the phone and making an appointment to see you, what's the easiest fix that anybody listening could could work on today? Easiest fix. Okay. Um, right. Oh, that's a good question. Right. Um, I would say nearly everybody I've ever seen is sitting too low, too far back, and your saddle nose should never be up. <laughs> if you make, if you just examine those two things, right? Um, if you've got a stat, if you if you train on a static bike. Um, oh, you've got power and stuff like that. Don't be surprised that saddle height, as long as it's not maybe, you know going too high, but I, know, I don't meet too many people go too high. It's unbelievable how much what, what power and watch you're leaving on the floor if you've not got your saddle uh, in the optimal height. And, and, and normally it's optimal height forward with nose down. Normally makes people, and the, makes a demonstrous difference to reach. The normal caveat is that obviously I don't, I haven't met anyone who's listening to this. I can't say it for everyone, but that's, that's my easy fix. Is it? And the other thing is uh, crank length. If you ever find that you struggle to 
get your cadence up. Um, you know, it, it nearly always crank length could be a reason why you're doing that. You're riding too big a crank length, yeah. And the last thing is, my other to if you shuffle around the saddle all the time and find yourself pushing yourself back all the time, look at your saddle width. It can make a massive difference. People who say, I say to them, you do, and they just shovel back all the time. It's normally they're looking for the support and they tell you it there once again. That's nice feeling. They tell you the answer again. I'm always pushing back in the saddle. And you measure the sit bones and they're on too narrow a saddle. And it, that's a lovely moment because it's a golden fix. Phil, it's been brilliant. Thanks so much. I've I've got a whole sheet of notes here. And when I listen to this again, I'm going to have another whole sheet. So there's some absolute gold dust there. Um, listeners, I hope I hope you appreciate and uh, and are able to um, put into action at least one or two of Phil's um, nuggets of information today. So, Phil Burt, Thank you very much for being here. Much appreciated. Thank you, Simon. Pleasure. Thank you again to Phil for being a guest on this week's High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast. As usual, there are links to all of today's discussion topics in the show notes. To make sure that you don't miss any episode in the future, please go to iTunes, search for High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast and click on the subscribe button. Also, don't forget to look for that link in the show notes so that you can download your free case study if you want to find out the simple formula I use to help athletes like you excel at their first long-distance triathlon. That's all for now. Have a great week, and I will see you on the next episode.